Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Every Square Inch. I am your host, Robert Cunningham. It has been a crazy uh, few weeks on the podcast, um, not just on the podcast, but in everyone's life and in the world. Um, but we have done on the podcast what everyone has done, which is adapted to um, these unconventional times and taken a break from our normal discussions to talk about uh, what is on everyone's mind, which of course is the pandemic. Uh, but I, I'm ready to enter back into our normal rhythm of topics, if for no other reason than to give us something to discuss other than this virus. Um, so we're getting back into things, but before we get back to the topic that uh, I left us hanging with a few weeks ago, which now seems like an eternity ago, admittedly so, um, before we get back to that, which was the deconversion phenomenon of our age, I want to talk resurrection today. This is Holy Week, which of course gives way to Easter Sunday here in a couple days. And much of what I'm going to say to the deconverted next week finds its basis in whether Easter is actually true. So not only because Easter is upon us, but also because the resurrection remains the foundational apologetic of the Christian faith, I'm going to do my best in this one podcast uh, to put forth my argument for the historicity of the resurrection, which admittedly is a taunting task to pull off in one podcast. This one may go a little bit longer than my normal ones. But when we talk about engaging every square inch of God's world with God's worldview, that discussion begins and ends with Jesus risen from the dead. If Jesus is risen, then Jesus is true. If Jesus is true, then obviously the worldview of Jesus is true. Conversely, if Jesus is not risen, then Jesus is false. If Jesus is false, then the body, the, the body, the Bible says, I am most to be pitied. And by implication, this podcast is most to be pitied. Uh, what we're doing on this podcast is rubbish and should be ignored if Jesus is not risen. It really is that simple. From a Christian perspective, nothing is more relevant today than whether we have a 2,000-year-old empty grave. So, simple question. That is history's greatest question. Is Jesus of Nazareth risen from the dead? Now, of course not, says our post-Enlightenment world. And to believe in such a myth goes against obvious uh, scientific evidence. The problem, however, is that to disbelieve in the resurrection is to deny obvious historical evidence. So here we have a clash between the scientific discipline and uh, the, the discipline of history. Whereas science studies the repeatable, history studies the unrepeatable. The historical discipline, unlike the scientific discipline, studies things that by definition happened only once. And therefore, the discipline of history is like a forensic investigation. All the evidence around that singular event is examined to derive a conclusion. Now, surprising to many, there is actually more evidence around the resurrection of Jesus than any other ancient event. Um, here are the most established facts widely accepted by historical scholarship. I'm just going to give you the ones that 
any historian with um, an unbiased agenda, religious or secular, um, these are the facts that are undeniable, historically speaking. Fact one, Rome crucified and buried a very public and popular revolutionary named Jesus of Nazareth. Fact two, a few days later, his tomb was discovered to be empty and neither the Roman or Jewish authorities were able to produce a body to account for this. Fact three, on multiple occasions and in many different circumstances, individuals and entire groups of people had post-mortem encounters with Jesus, most compellingly the historical antagonistic the historical antagonist of the early Christian movement, Saul of Tarsus. Fact four, out of nowhere and against all odds, there arose history's greatest movement based not on teachings or revelation, but upon a very falsifiable historical event, Jesus risen from the dead. On a most basic level, these are the four accepted facts, the, the crime scene evidence of Easter, so to speak. Now, the question becomes, what is the best explanation of these facts? Now, if we were talking about anything else, the answer would be obvious. We could say with unrivaled historical certainty, the event obviously took place. But here we are talking about a conclusion so extraordinary with implications so demanding that intense scrutiny of the historical details is both appropriate and expected. So let's explore the evidence more deeply. What I've done is condense down a deeper analysis of the evidence into one acronym, which conveniently is RISEN. So using the acronym RISEN, I'm going to present five reasons why the best explanation for the evidence um, that we find is that Jesus is, in fact, risen from the dead. So risen. R, revolutionary evidence. I, inconsistent evidence. S, spurious evidence. E, embarrassing evidence. N, novel evidence. Let's go through those. Um, but... Let me, let me state, before we go through those, let me state what needs to be stated. Obviously, I am not a um, trained historian. This scholarship is not my own. Um, instead, I'm, I'm going to do my best to summarize and explain um, what have been the most compelling works I've read, um, relying most heavily on N.T. Wright and his seminal work, The Resurrection of the Son of God. So there's my qualification for intellectual honesty. Now let's dive in together. R. Revolutionary evidence. Defending the truth of the resurrection begins by considering its undeniable significance. Perhaps the greatest reason to accept its historical reality is the historical revolution it created. When you consider his credentials, Jesus should never have worked. He was poor, uneducated, non-political, counter-cultural, resisted all popularity, and left the world no writings. His public ministry lasted only three years until he was shamefully executed like a common criminal without a follower left to his name, except one could argue one disciple and a few loyal women. And yet here we are with this same Jesus standing alone as the centerpiece of human existence 
and a following that is the flagship movement of human history. From a historical perspective, this makes no sense, which is why historians have struggled for centuries to make sense of it. In particular, it's the early stages of this revolution that is so baffling. One might conceive how generations later, perhaps the legend of Jesus has been passed down and has spread and the movement took on a life of its own, but it's that first generation that is so inexplicable. How is it that his disciples, who had all abandoned him at his death and weren't even particularly faithful and bold during his life, were curiously transformed into these courageous witnesses willing to go to their own deaths for Jesus? Or consider the Apostle Paul. Um, Even the most critical historian will not deny Paul's story. He was Christianity's first and fiercest opponent, having early Christians imprisoned and killed, and then out of nowhere he becomes Christianity's fiercest advocate, willing to endure his own imprisonment and death to spread the news of Jesus. How do we account for these impossible transformations? Well, the easiest way to account for this is to take the transformed ones at their word. They claimed What changed everything for them was encountering the risen Jesus. That's essentially how this whole thing called Christianity got started. These early followers went about the ancient world proclaiming that Jesus is risen, which means Jesus is true, which means the gospel he proclaimed, the kingdom he proclaimed is true. On that point, there is no debate. All historians agree that the resurrection was the foundation and motivation of this movement from its inception. The debate is whether they actually encountered the resurrection or invented the resurrection. Now, there are many problems with the idea of them inventing the resurrection that I'm going to point out here in a moment, but the biggest problem is that nobody would ever die for a lie of their own invention. Of their own invention is the important part. People die for lies all the time. Take the 9-11 terrorists, for example. They absolutely believed they were right in their martyrdom and terrorism. But the problem with the disciples' martyrdom is that they would be dying for a known lie that they themselves crafted. So skeptical historians are left making the following case. Cowardly disciples who abandoned Jesus in his death, along with Christianity's earliest enemy, along with hundreds of other lesser-known people, contrived a mass conspiracy to trick the ancient world into believing an unbelievable event took place. And not only were they able to pull the conspiracy off, impossibly unlikely, as we will see, they were also willing to suffer and die for their own conspiracy. Or the other option is that Jesus rose from the dead, appearing to his disciples, appearing to his sworn enemy and hundreds others, and that revolutionary miracle led to a revolutionary falling, a revolution that carries on to this day. So R, revolutionary evidence. Next, I, inconsistent evidence. If this Easter week you visit any atheist blog or YouTube channel, Uh, you are sure to find some reference to the notorious inconsistencies in the gospel accounts of the resurrection. For example, in Mark's account, it says that Mary, Mary, and Salome went to the tomb. 
In Matthew, it just mentions the two Marys. In Luke, it's Mary, Mary, and Joanna. And in John, it seems to only be Mary Magdalene. In Mark, the stone has just been rolled away. But in Matthew, there is an angel sitting on top of it. In Mark, there is only one angel in the tomb, but in Luke, there are two. So critics point to these contradictions as a way of discrediting the validity of the resurrection accounts. It should be said that um, biblical scholars have gone to great lengths to show that these aren't as contradictory as they may seem. But that aside, historically speaking, we should not be troubled by these inconsistencies because they actually go a long way in proving that something extraordinary took place. Ironically, the very thing about the gospel that people assumes discredits the resurrection turns out to be one of the most historically compelling arguments for the resurrection. You see, minor consistencies, excuse me, minor inconsistencies are actually something historians are looking for in determining the reliability of multiple sources reporting on the same event. If differing accounts describe an extraordinary event with the exact same details, it tends to indicate a story that has been carefully fabricated or simply reproduced and copied. But if multiple witnesses are describing the same event, particularly an extraordinary event, then surface discrepancies are to be expected. In this way, these small inconsistencies authenticate the nature of witness testimony. N.T. Wright likes to use the example of a famous philosophy debate at Cambridge University between Karl Popper and Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein. The debate has turned into quite the legend because it was a very heated debate and Wittgenstein uh, actually started wielding a fireplace poker and eventually stormed out of the debate. But what's interesting about the story is that as it has been retold by the many eyewitnesses there, the details have become just as contested as the debate itself. Some say that Wittgenstein was actually trying to hit Popper with the poker. Some say he was just waving it around in the air, angry. Some say he threw the poker down and then stormed out. Some say he stormed out with a poker in hand. In fact, the retelling has become such a mystery that there's actually a documentary made exploring all these differing accounts of the debate. But despite multiple witnesses telling the story from their own perspective, there is no debate whatsoever that Popper and Wittgenstein were in a fierce argument, that Wittgenstein was waving a poker in some fashion, and that Wittgenstein actually uh, stormed out of the room. And this is what you will find always when you talk to multiple witnesses about an extraordinary event. The bulk of the story is the same, and the surface details tend to be experientially unique. I was listening to one of those crime podcasts recently where a detective was actually explaining that if he interviews multiple people about a crime and he is getting the exact same story down to the smallest details, then he immediately suspects that the story has been made up and rehearsed. Instead, what he is looking for are accounts that line up in the most significant ways but also include personal differences and perspectives. And this is exactly what we find in the Gospels. If the, if the disciples made up the resurrection in an attempt to fool the ancient world, then what we should expect is the exact same story told in the exact same way. 
but the but the gospel accounts actually feel like real authentic human experience and witness of an extraordinary event. Our doctrine of biblical inspiration is not that writers go into a trance and dictate what the Holy Spirit says. Instead, we believe that God ordained the witnesses, their experiences, their personalities, their circumstances, their perspectives, and all of these things converge together to give us authentic witness. And nowhere does this come out more than in the resurrection accounts. They feel authentic because they are authentic. The surface inconsistencies only serve to verify the central tenet, the remarkable event that is Jesus risen from the dead. So, revolutionary evidence, inconsistent evidence, S, spurious evidence. The word spurious means false, and it is how biblical scholars describe non-canonical verses, passages, or entire books. So when I say non-canonical, I'm talking about the canon of Scripture. And um, so you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were trusted and canonized based upon their recognized apostolic authority, meaning they were known to derive from authentic eyewitness accounts. But there are many other writings, such as the Gospel of Thomas, Mary, Judas, uh, that are known to be what's called spurious. There are also additions to the original writings that are considered spurious. So, for example, the Gospel of Mark, which is the earliest gospel, ends very abruptly, an important fact that I'm going to return to here in a moment. Um, But it ends abruptly with these words concerning the resurrection. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." If you look at the Bible, it, if you look in your Bible, it probably includes 11 additional verses, verses 9 through uh, 20 in brackets with some sort, some sort of a note uh, that they were not a part of the original manuscripts. So why are they there? Well, essentially, uh, there were several later attempts to quote-unquote improve upon Mark's abrupt ending And one, in particular, became popularized and began showing up in later manuscripts. Then the King James Version included it, which led to its widespread inclusion in nearly every English translation. However, scholars unanimously, um, I would say mostly unanimously agree, that this is not Mark's writing and was not a part of the original gospel. So what does all this have to do with the historicity of the resurrection? Some get discouraged by all the spurious writings surrounding the New Testament and the resurrection, assuming that it's a threat to the historical reliability of Scripture. But in fact, the opposite is true. In the same way the inconsistent accounts of the resurrection confirm the resurrection, the spurious accounts of the resurrection are likewise confirming. Here's why. Do you know how significant it is that we can understand first century documents so precisely that we know definitively what should and should not be included? That is historically unprecedented. How do historians know what an ancient document actually said? They rely on three criteria. How many copies do we have? How near are these copies to the original? And how much do these copies agree? So if you only have a few copies of something and those copies are dated long after the original writing, 
and those copies don't agree much, then it's very difficult to know exactly what was originally said. But then you consider something like Homer's Iliad, uh, the most attested ancient document outside the Bible. We now have over 1,000 surviving copies. There's a 400-year time gap between the original and earliest copy. That might seem like a lot to you, but it's actually fairly short in comparison to other writings. And the copies that we do have agree 95% of the time. What this means, historically speaking, is that nobody would ever question that we have an accurate understanding of Homer's original work. Now, consider the New Testament. 5,600 surviving copies and counting. Some of these copies dated an astounding 40 years from the original source. And they agree equally astoundingly 99% of the time. If you want to verify those claims and numbers, I commend to you Bruce Metzger's scholarship. Uh, for instance, the New Testament, its background, growth, and content. Or the most definitive work is by uh, Richard Bauckham entitled Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. But the compelling point I'm making is that so precise is the documentation that we can know down to a single word what is authentic and what is spurious. Simply put, the Bible is far and away the most attested and verified document the world has ever known. Therefore, the uninformed assumption that is propagated by internet scholarship <laughs> that presents the resurrection as a legend passed down and recorded many centuries after the fact, that is demonstrably false. In reality, the New Testament contains historically reliable accounts of the resurrection recorded while the event itself was still falsifiable by living witnesses. Meaning this, for example, Paul mentions a group of 500 witnesses, most of whom were still alive in a letter dated 20 years after the resurrection, 1 Corinthians. That's, that's astounding. Essentially, he's saying, look, Jesus has appeared to all these witnesses. Some are still alive. You can go talk to them for yourself. Now, does this prove that the resurrection um, is authentic? No. It does, however, prove that the historical record of the resurrection is authentic. Historically speaking, were we dealing with anything else, there would be no debate. The witnesses are authentic. The writings are authentic. It seems to me we should believe the event itself is authentic. So, revolutionary evidence, inconsistent evidence, spurious evidence, next, embarrassing evidence. There have been many theories presented to explain the overwhelming evidence surrounding the resurrection, some more ridiculous than others. My favorite is the twin brother hypothesis that suggests Jesus had a twin brother who, after his crucifixion, assumed the place of his brother and fooled everybody and led the revolution. Yes, that is an actual uh, published dissertation. So there are so many theories out there trying desperately to explain the historical crime scene, the historical facts in a way other than the resurrection happened. But at the end of the day, there really are only two possibilities, and I think historians would agree with me on this. There really, it comes down to two possibilities. It happened or the disciples invented it. There is just too much historical evidence for it to be anything other than one of these two, and I don't know a serious scholar who would disagree with that. 
So this is why the vast majority of critical scholarship for whom a miracle is just an impossibility have generally come down to a consensus that the resurrection was contrived by early followers determined to carry out um, this messianic movement after Christ's death. There is debate about uh, the conspiracy itself, but that it was a conspiracy is the most widely held view among skeptics. The problem, however, is if it was a disciple conspiracy, it was an embarrassingly bad conspiracy. Simply put, if they had written the story, they never would have written it this way. For example, the disciples themselves come across as cowardly and faithless. Most significantly is Peter, the leader of the early church, literally renouncing Jesus in his greatest hour of need. Embarrassment aside, why would the disciples who are trying to establish authority and credibility ever present themselves, and certainly the great apostle Peter, as such a cowardly and pathetic failure? That does not help their cause and certainly undermines the authority they're trying to contrive. But there's a much more embarrassing detail that is easy to miss in our culture. The resurrection finds its origins in female testimony. One detail that is consistent in every gospel is that women, unlike the disciples, did not abandon Jesus in his arrest and death and were the original witnesses to the resurrection and were the first commissioned to tell the world that Jesus is risen. So why is that embarrassing? Well, the opinion and voice of women in the first century context was completely disregarded, so much so that their testimony was not considered valid in any court. And this discrimination and marginalization was based upon an actual belief that women were genuinely less reliable and intelligent, prone to believing outlandish myths and literally old wives' tales. And therefore, their opinion just could not be trusted. We know it's ridiculous, but that was the context. But one of the most beautiful things about Jesus is how countercultural he was regarding women. He trusted women, not just throughout his ministry, but with the very news of his resurrection. Now, we in modern society love this about Jesus, but we also need to understand how embarrassing and difficult this part of Christianity's early story was. This is why it is impossible to imagine the disciples ever choosing to include women in their conspiracy, not to mention having them play such a prominent role if they were going to try to convince the ancient world that something as astounding as a resurrection has taken place then they would want to keep women as far from the story as possible, to include women, certainly to include women as the original witnesses of the resurrection would just open them up to the claim of, ah, old wives' tale, women doing what women do. And yet, there the women are, all over the story of the resurrection. Why did the gospel writers include them? Because Jesus left them no choice. It was an incredibly inconvenient and embarrassing detail of the story, but it had to be included because it was a well-known and established detail of the story. Either the resurrection happened or it was invented. Historically, those are the two options. If it was invented, it was a bad invention that never would have worked. 
But it did work, embarrassing details and all. And it actually worked because it actually happened. Revolutionary evidence, inconsistent evidence, spurious evidence, embarrassing evidence. Finally, thanks for hanging with me, novel evidence. So, if the disciples invented the resurrection, it was an embarrassingly bad invention. But there's an even bigger problem to the conspiracy theory than embarrassing details surrounding the resurrection. It's the idea of a resurrection at all. If you recall, we already discussed the notoriously abrupt conclusion to Mark's gospel, which consequently led to a spurious addition to try to, quote-unquote, fix the awkward ending. But in actuality, it is the abruptness and confusion of the earliest gospel account that makes it so compelling. Again, Mark ends uh, with these words in Mark 16, 8. And they went out and fled the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, literarily speaking, that is a really bad conclusion to what has been a wonderful story from Mark. No explanation or application, just fear and confusion. It's almost as if Mark is struggling to describe something for which the apostles don't yet understand. But this is precisely the point. The resurrection was an utterly novel concept that nobody had a category for. After 2,000 years of Easter's influence, we have grown accustomed, perhaps even numb to the concept, but it is very important to understand that Jesus completely surprised the world when he rose from the dead. This is where N.T. Wright's work has really added to the discussion. That massive volume, The Resurrection of the Son of God, is essentially proving one thesis. There is no possible way the disciples and early followers could have invented the resurrection because it is an event, it is an event that they never could have expected or even imagined. There were many messianic movements prior to Jesus, and they all ended the same way. The figure would die, the movement would die with him. Not one time did the followers of one of these figures have the idea of pretending he rose from the dead, much less try to pull off such an impossible hoax. It was a profoundly ludicrous idea. First century people knew very well that dead people stay dead. And they never would have thought up the, con- the concept of, gee, let's pretend our leader is resurrected from the dead. And yet, out of nowhere, the disciples started claiming that Jesus is risen from the dead, as ridiculously unlikely as that may seem. And the nature of the resurrection they described was likewise inconceivable. So perhaps the enchanted world of the first century would have believed the story that Jesus was appearing as a spirit or something like that, a post-mortem ghost. But that wasn't the claim. He wasn't a ghost. He was an actual physical body that they could see, touch, and share a meal with. And yet there was something different about his physical body because he would appear out of nowhere even into locked rooms as though the laws of space and time didn't apply to his resurrected estate. The risen Jesus was a completely novel concept, both physical and spiritual, a glorified body that the disciples never could have conceived of, let alone try to invent. 
And what's more, the risen Jesus started appearing to other witnesses, entire groups of people, and again, even Jesus's greatest enemy. And by the time you get to the book of Acts and the letters of the apostles, the resurrection has moved from something entirely unexpected, what we see in Mark, the earliest gospel, to center stage of the story, the very dominant tenet of the faith. Something that was inconceivably novel becomes uncompromisingly necessary within the first years of the early church. And from there, the rest is, as they say, history. 2,000 years ago, history was interrupted by the world's greatest surprise. And to this day, that surprise is confronting us all with the same challenge to believe. We demand evidence as we should, but at some point we must admit that the evidence is so overwhelming that it now makes a demand of us. You can stubbornly deny the evidence and hold fast to blind unbelief, or give way to the evidence and believe what it all points to, Jesus is risen from the dead. You see, at some point, debating evidence gives way to debating worldviews. If you steadfastly believe that supernatural events cannot and do not happen, then no amount of evidence is going to convince you. But the problem, philosophically speaking, is that a worldview void of supernatural is a very bold and unsubstantiated belief system that one chooses to accept by faith. And it is that faith commitment that miracles are impossible, that resurrection is the resurrection evidence is sternly challenging. N.T. Wright tells the story of an Oxford colleague, I think it was Oxford, one of his colleagues reviewing his work and admitting that um, Wright's scholarship is flawless, his argument is solid, and historically speaking, the work is overwhelmingly compelling, compelling. But, he says to Tom Wright, no matter what the evidence suggests, dead people don't come back to life. N.T. Wright responds, that's fine, my friend, just as long as you're now willing to admit that you're the one now denying the evidence in favor of blind faith in your worldview. Don't you see? Either your worldview will have to expand to account for the evidence, or you will choose to stubbornly deny the evidence to maintain your worldview. But if a worldview has room for the miraculous, then all the evidence makes perfect sense, and suddenly the unbelievable becomes undeniable. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Thanks for listening. Blessed Easter to all of you. Lord willing, we'll be back next week for another episode of Every Square Inch. Thank you.